Okay, don't drink too much. Okay, that's good. We gotta finish the story so you can get some sleep. All right, now where were we? Abraham and his family ended up in slavery in a place called Egypt. Oh, okay, great. So the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt and God gave them a deliverer named Moses who told Pharaoh to let, let my... my people go. Well, how'd you know that? I saw the movie and God sent lots of plagues until Pharaoh let the Israelites go. Well, very good. So they left Egypt and they crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years? That's almost as old as you. Almost. Anyway, God gave them the Ten Commandments, made a covenant with them, and then led them to Jericho, where they wandered around the city until the walls came tumbling down. I saw that movie too. Well, did you see the movie where they finally made it to the promised land and stopped following God again? They had nobody to lead them. They needed a king. So the question is, why is it Israel wanted to have a king rule over them instead of God? To answer that question, we have to go back to the very last judge of Israel. His name was Samuel. Samuel was a good man. He was a godly man. He ruled well as a judge. But in his old age, he appointed his sons to also rule. And they were not like Samuel. They were spiritual scallywags. They took advantage of their position and really ripped the people off and disobeyed God severely. So you can understand why when the people came to Samuel, they said to him, we want to have a king like all the other nations. And when they said that to Samuel, it really ticked him off because he felt like he was being rejected. He went to God, but God said, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. So if they really want a king, then they can have a human king and they will pay the price for it. And so the people selected the tallest, most handsome man in Israel. His name happened to be Saul. Now, Saul outwardly appeared to have his act together, looked like a king. But inwardly, Saul, well, he had all kinds of problems. He had real character issues going on in his life. And part of the character issues that he struggled with was dishonesty, lack of integrity. Not only that, but he just was filled with pride, refused to obey God's word. It was a sad kind of situation for Saul. And as a result of that, Samuel had to say to him, you, Saul, have been rejected by God because of your continual disobedience. God is going to choose a different leader. And so God sent Samuel all the way to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. Now, Jesse had eight sons, and Samuel interviewed seven of them. And as he went by each one, he was sure that the one he was talking to was the right one because they just looked the part. Finally, God said to Samuel, look, you keep looking on the outside, Samuel. I want you to take a look on the inside. You see, I've chosen who it's going to be because I see their heart. 
Well, Samuel said, are you, you know, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse said, well, there's this young kid out watching the sheep. I don't know what went through Samuel's mind. This is ridiculous. I'm, you know, like God's gonna choose a king out of a shepherd boy. But that's exactly what God did. He chose David to become the king of Israel. David, this young shepherd boy. What was it about David's life? Well, you probably know the story about the greatest duel that ever take place between David and Goliath. Remember, Goliath was the Philistine giant who came out and taunted the armies of Israel. He said to them, send out your champion. We'll have a fight to the death. And whoever wins takes all. Well, none of the Israelites were, were brave enough to step out into the valley and take on Goliath. Not even Saul, head and shoulders tall and handsome and strong and buff, was willing to go out into the valley. David, the young man, says, I'll take him on. I'm not afraid of him. Without any choice, Saul said, okay, you can go. David didn't want to wear the armor Saul offered him because it was just way too heavy and too big and too awkward. He never wore an armor before. He just took five smooth stones he picked up from a brook and his very simple shepherd's slingshot and walked out into the valley. When Goliath saw him coming, Goliath was really upset. He felt insulted that they were sending a boy to fight a man's battle. He looked at David and he said, I'm gonna feed your flesh to the birds of the air. David said to Goliath, you come at me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I'm coming to you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel. And today he's going to deliver you into our hands because the battle belongs to the Lord. And he put one of those smooth stones in the sling and he swung it around and around and he let that stone go. Bam, it hit the giant right in the head. And he went toppling over like a large piece of timber and and Goliath died, and David won the battle. And that day, in front of all of the people watching, God exalted his humble servant who was willing to be faithful and honor God. Now, I wish I could tell you that David defeated every giant in his life. But there was one giant David did not defeat. You see, after God had made him successful, and after he had been ruling for a while, he stepped out on his veranda and he saw his neighbor's wife bathing and he began to struggle with the giant called lust. But instead of conquering that giant by just running away from it, turning his head and saying no, he caved into it and he had her brought to his room and they committed adultery. When he found out that they had conceived a child together, well, he had her husband murdered and he married her to make it look as though the husband was killed in war, and he's this gracious man that's now taking her to be his wife. He thought he'd gotten away with it till the prophet Nathan showed up and pointed his finger in David's face and pointed out and called out his sin. Now, what made David different from Saul is that when his sin was called out, rather than be filled with pride, he wept, wept in total repentance for what he had done. Now, God forgave him, but there were consequences. His family would be fractured. One day, the nation would be fractured. 
After David died, his son Solomon came to the throne and things looked like there might be some real hope. Solomon was a man wiser than any other because God had made him that way. He was humble and godly. He ruled so well until later in his life when he married a bunch of foreign women. He adopted their pagan gods and Solomon, the wise man, actually begins to bow down to their gods as well and grieve the heart of God. And after Solomon died, his son Rehoboam, now David's grandson, came to the throne. Would Rehoboam learn the lessons of his father and his grandfather? The people came to Rehoboam and said, you know, your father Solomon became really harsh with us. He taxed us heavily. He oppressed us. He forced us into labor. If you'll just lighten up, if you'll back off, we'll serve you. Well, rather than listen to the wise elders that he had, he listened to his peers. And Rehoboam said to them, you know what? You see my little finger? My little finger is bigger around than my father's waist. In other words, I'm bigger, I'm badder than my dad. If he whipped you with cords, I'll whip you with scorpions. And this really upset the Israelites. As a result, a man by the name of Jeroboam decided that he was going to lead a civil war. And he did, and fractured Israel. What happened is they end up with a kingdom in the south ruled by Rehoboam, the descendants of David. They make Jerusalem their capital. Jeroboam takes over what becomes known as the northern kingdom, and he makes Samaria the capital. Now, each kingdom had about 20 kings each. In the south, there were 20 kings, and eight of the 20 were pretty godly rulers. In the north, they had 20 kings, and every one of them were very evil rulers. Very, very sad. And that's where we meet these peculiar people called prophets. Prophets were the voice of God. Prophets came, and prophets announced to the king and to the people if they were being disobedient to God. For instance, they would confront them if they were practicing idolatry and say, you must stop and repent of your ways. And the most famous prophet to the north was this guy named Elijah. He had to prophesy to Ahab and Ahab's wife, Jezebel, the Canaanite, who was very wicked. They introduced idolatry, the worship of Baal in the northern kingdom. And Elijah challenged the 450 prophets of Baal to a contest. He said, let's find out who the true God is. You guys build an altar, put a sacrifice of an animal on it, and you call the Baal and see if Baal will come and consume that sacrifice. And then I'll build an altar, put an animal on it, and I'll call out to Yahweh, the true and living God, and let's see who answers. So the prophets of Baal made their altar, put their sacrifice on it, and all day long, they prayed, they sang, they chanted, they cut themselves, Nothing happened. Elijah had a little fun with them. He said, maybe your God's on vacation. Maybe your God's in the bathroom. And then he built his altar. He placed a sacrifice and cried out to God, and God heard him and sent a fire that consumed the entire sacrifice as a result. Now, you would think that there would have been a spiritual revival in the northern kingdom when the people saw that. That's not what happened. They continued in their sin and their wickedness, refusing to listen to God. And as a result of that, God sent the Assyrians and the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and scattered the Israelites, intermarrying them into other populations. And you never hear from the northern kingdom again. 
which raises an interesting question, and that is what happened to the southern kingdom? Before I answer that, I want us to just back up a little bit because the southern kingdom was made up of two tribes, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And I want us to understand how important this southern tribe is. To do that, we need to go back to David. Remember David, our hero? Well, what we discover is that David wasn't perfect. He had a sinful heart, and his sin was so grievous. Yet God said to him in his repentance, David, you will have a descendant who one day will rule on your throne, but unlike you, he won't have a sinful heart. He'll be righteous. Well, which descendant was he talking about? I mean, if you look at the history of David's family, they were not very good people. There were a lot of chumps in his family. In fact, they pursued gold and they pursued power and they pursued women. They worshiped false gods. They drove Jerusalem into the ground. Finally, God sends Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to tear down the walls to crush the temple and take the people away as slaves in exile back to Babylon. And that brings us to this very strange book in the Bible called Lamentations. And it is what it says. It's a book of laments. People crying out to God. People, the few that are left in the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem and the many who've been taken exile all the way off into Babylon and the surrounding areas. When you come to the first chapter of the book of Lamentations, Jerusalem is personified as the daughter of Zion. She sits out in the street. It's as though people are walking around her, dressed in black. She's mourning and bereaved, and she's calling out, and no one seems to notice. No one knows what to do. Look, O oh Lord, she says, on my distress. And it feels like God's not looking. She feels like a widow at a funeral who's lost a loved one and there's no one there to comfort. When you get to the third chapter, you get to the longest chapter in the book of Lamentations, the personification changes. This time, you have the personification of Israel as this man who is suffering in rags, crying out to God, why has this happened? I call on your name. He echoes laments taken from the book of Job. He cries out laments from the Psalms. He cries out the lament that you find in the book of Isaiah. He's crying out, God, so much injustice. Where's the justice? It just seems like so much bad news. And then you come across a couple of verses that are the only good news to be found in this book of laments. What we discover is that in chapter three, he rises above the clouds and as he rises above the clouds, the poet inspired by God says, because the Lord's covenant faithfulness, we do not perish. His mercies never fail. They are new every morning. How great is your faithfulness, O God. So I say to myself, the Lord is my inheritance. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. Lamentations 3, 22 through 24. The Lord's covenant faithfulness. Lord's covenant faithfulness. And that brings us to the third principle of how Christmas came to be. Now, I don't know if you've been with me over the weekends. If you haven't, you can go online and watch the messages and catch up. But in the first weekend, we said, faith in the promises of God. That's how Christmas came to be. Men and women put faith in God's promise, like Abraham. Last weekend, we said, 
utter dependence on the power of God. People put their dependence on God's power. That's how Christmas came to be. This weekend, our third principle is simply this. Hope in the tender mercies of a faithful God. Hope in the tender mercies of a faithful God. Even when things look utterly bleak, God is faithful. When we are faithless, God shows up. You can trust God. God is a faithful God. And think about what that means. For them, as we rehearse the long history of Israel, and for you and for me, what does it mean to put your hope in the faithfulness and the mercies of God? Well, think about Israel for a moment. I mean, the walls have been torn down. The temple has been decimated. Most of the population has been taken away. And there are tears flowing at home where there are a few people left in the rubble. And there are tears flowing as the people are being led away captive. Nobody dreamed it would ever happen in Jerusalem. Do you know why? Because that's where the temple was. And the temple is supposed to be where God is. Therefore, if we've got the temple and we've got God, nothing like this could ever happen, no matter how disobedient we've been. Well, they had it coming to them. I mean, there were plenty of prophets that spoke to Judah, to Jerusalem, to the kings and to the people and to the false prophets. Stop your ways. Stop your evil ways. Don't do this. Change your ways. But time and time again, they refused to listen. And finally, God had no choice but to shake them up by allowing the walls to come down and allowing the temple to be destroyed. You know, when I think about that, I think about all the people who were innocent. And what I mean by that is not that they were sinless, but they loved God. They honored God. They obeyed God. They wanted to see revival in Judah. They wanted to see repentance. And what happened to them? Why did they have to go through that? People like... Ezekiel and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Jeremiah. Oh, there was always and always has been to this very day a faithful remnant in Israel. And then as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the words of Jesus in John chapter 16, verse 33. He's talking to his followers and his words echo all the way to this weekend at Loring Park, Edina, here in Prairie. God is speaking to us. Listen to what he has to say to you right now. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. I just want to focus on what he says. In this world you're going to have trouble. In this world there's going to be suffering and pain. Just because you're a follower, just because you love God does not mean you're exempt from that pain. You're exempt from that suffering. I mean, some of you know exactly what I mean this weekend. You're experiencing suffering and pain and difficulties because of problems at work or maybe problems in your marriage or in your family or maybe in the neighborhood, maybe even at church. It happens. 
It's not that you're totally innocent, but you've been trying to do your best, but other people have been pressing in and other people have been misbehaving. And as a result of their sins, you know, you end up with the consequences as well. Or I think about economic oppression. I mean, after the walls come tumbling down in Jerusalem, just read the book of Nehemiah, book of Ezra, the poverty that took place there, hardship. On the innocent as well as those who are guilty, and perhaps you're feeling some of that suffering in your life as well. Or just physical suffering, sickness, disease, all the stuff that comes with this body that's not perfect in this world filled with germs and sickness. So you feel that. Or maybe it's the environment. I mean, think about what the country and the world's been through this past year as we get ready to end this year. I mean, hurricanes and tornadoes, floods and fires. It rains on the just and the unjust. Hardship happens either way around. And the question becomes, you know, when you're lamenting all of that, and by the way, the book of Lamentations kind of gives us permission to lament. just want you to know that. It's okay to lament. It's just not okay to lament endlessly. But God's never offended when we tell him honestly how we feel or how, how broken we are. And sometimes I feel like we're so afraid to do that. Like, if I really tell God how I feel, which is kind of silly because, you know, he already knows it, right? He'll be upset with me. It won't seem very Christian. Read your Bible. Read Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets, says to God, I'm so fed up, I don't, I'm not even going to talk anymore. And then he goes on, he says, but it burned in my heart. I had to say something. He got kind of put out with God. It's okay to get put out sometimes and share your feelings and thoughts with God. He's not offended by it. He knows we're, we're human. He knows we don't see the whole picture. What we have to do, though, is we have to embed our suffering in the big story of what God is doing and not see it as just my little, you know, my little experience, my little world. I got to understand it. It's a result of what happened in Genesis, but I got to understand it's all going to be reconciled one day again. Say, okay, okay, I get the theology of it, but could you give me something practical to do? Yes, I want to give you something practical to do when you're lamenting, when you're struggling and you're suffering. And here it is. You ready? It's profound. You ready to write this down? You've got to learn to talk to yourself. How many of you will admit that sometimes you talk to yourself? I can see the hands at Loring Park, Eddie Dinah. How about Ian Prairie? All right? Yes, we all do. And if you look at this passage of Scripture, you notice he also talks himself. He says, so I say to myself. Now, the question is, what are you telling yourself? What are you saying to yourself? I don't want to hurt your feelings, but most of the time when we talk to ourselves, we lie to ourselves. Do you know why? Because we allow our emotions, our feelings to talk to us. And, you know, we talked about feelings a couple of messages ago. And what I can tell you about your feelings is they're not always very honest. Our feelings oftentimes misread situations. And they just oftentimes fill our minds with things that aren't really true about God, about people, about ourselves, about our circumstances. And you got to be careful you don't listen to your circumstances either. Because we tend to treat our circumstances as though they're permanent and they're not. You say, wait a minute, I disagree with you. What if a person is paralyzed? That's a permanent circumstance, barring a miracle. You're right, but it's a temporary circumstance. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, if you're a believer, you know that when you die, your body gets buried, you go to be with the Lord, and someday you get a resurrected body again, don't you? 
In that sense, everything's temporary until the Lord returns. So you gotta learn to talk to yourself, and that means you gotta tell yourself the truth. So the question becomes, well, what, what is this truth I'm supposed to tell myself? Well, look what this guy does in the book of Lamentations. He says, because of the Lord's covenant faithfulness. So the first thing he says is, okay, God is a God of unconditional love. Don't feel like it right now. It doesn't seem like it right now. God is a God of unconditional love. God's love is a loyal love. Boy, it was Israel's disloyal, huh? And sometimes ours isn't so loyal either. But I want to tell you something. God's love is always loyal to you. He goes on in the passage, he says, we do not perish. His mercies never fail. And the word that he uses there for mercies is a word that a woman would use to describe and talking about the baby in her womb. It's very tender. It's very precious. So he's telling himself, okay, I'm in this mess, but God's love is unconditional. God's love is loyal. And God's love is so compassionate. You say, Pastor, that sounds really good. Some of you at Lori Parker are like, yeah, that, that, that sounds good, right? Some of you at Diana are like, yeah, okay, that sounds good, but what is the reality of it, okay? Because here I am in my mess. What good does it do for me to say God's love is loyal and God is so compassionate? Here's the deal. The proof of God's loyalty, the proof of his compassion is that he condescends to our level that's what Christmas is about. That's what the manger is all about. God comes and sits with us in the ash heap of our suffering. Do you remember the picture of the woman I described to you, the daughter of Zion that you saw up there? Remember, we, it was colored in with black and she's kneeling. And then that guy in chapter three, remember that kneeling and just, you know, in agony and suffering? When you're in agony, when you're suffering, you're never alone. God came to suffer with us, for us, and with you right now. He knows what it's like to be forsaken. He knows what it's like to be forgotten. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be killed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what, what it's like to be treated as though you're inferior. He knows all about bigotry and injustice. The amazing thing is that this God is willing to live with us in that pain and in that suffering and to say to us in our suffering, I'm with you, I'm with you, you're not alone, I'm with you. And I'm working out my purposes. And I want you to hang on to me as I hang on to you because this is going to be used to glorify my father like my death, my suffering was used to glorify my father. And then I know this sounds trite because we hear it so often, but it takes some newer and powerful meaning. What the writer here in Lamentations teaches us is that we're to appropriate God's presence with us daily. Daily. So look back at the passage. He says, So I say to myself, The Lord is my inheritance, therefore I will put my hope in him. When? Look what he says. His mercies never fail, they are new every morning. So I'm going to put my hope in him every morning. Every morning his mercies show up new to me. 
So really what, what we're supposed to do is live just one day at a time on the mercies of God. And I can tell you why some of you, and I'll include myself, struggle with this concept. It's because I want tomorrow's mercies today. And I want the day after tomorrow's mercies today. In other words, I want, I want a down payment on all of God's mercies today. I don't want to just deal with today. I want to know that tomorrow and next week and next month are taken care of. I want that assurance today. Anybody besides me know what I'm talking about? But God doesn't operate that way. He says, no, they show up every morning, brand new and fresh. And as John Piper said, as he was commenting on this passage, he says, we just don't like going to bed with the gauge on empty. Right? Don't like that. How many of you have the responsibility, how many of you are married? Let me see your hands, okay? Uh, how many of you in your home have the responsibility of making sure the cars are always full of gas? Yeah, okay, I'm reminded that sometimes. I was supposed to do it yesterday, I forgot. I didn't fill it up. It was empty this morning. It had to be filled up. We don't like going to bed knowing the tank's gonna be empty in the morning. But God says, yep, that's what you have to do. Don't worry about tomorrow morning. I'll show up tomorrow morning. Right now, my mercies are available for you today in this moment. And I think God does that because he wants to keep us close. He wants to keep us close because if he assures us tomorrow and the day after next week, then we just go, okay, I don't have to worry about God now. Everything's good. I'm in control. How about you? Do you wait on God every day for his mercies? That's how God proves his faithfulness to us. When we live in dependence on him. I mean, think of the context of the story we've been in, if you've been with me the last couple of weeks. When the Israelites are going through the wilderness, when they're wandering through the wilderness, do they get all the manna for the entire week in one day? No. Why? <laughs> because God wants them to learn to depend each day on him. So what's God trying to teach you in your life right now? Probably to depend on him and let him show you just how faithful he is. Great is the faithfulness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to approach the manger on Christmas Eve, and celebrate the birth on Christmas Day. I want to thank you, Father, for your great faithfulness. I want to thank you that you have proven over and over in the Scriptures that when we are faithless, you are faithful. When David was faithless, you were still faithful. When Moses was faithless, you were still faithful. When Peter was faithless, you were still faithful. And when we are faithless, you are still faithful. I want to thank you that every day, oh God, you meet us with new mercies to get us through that day. And I want to thank you that every day you're with us in the journey, even in the difficulties of the journey, even in our suffering, you're right there with us, God.
And when I thank you, Father, that our suffering, our struggles in life are for one specific reason, to glorify you by how we receive them, how we deal with them. I want to thank you that you are patient enough to let us lament to you sometimes about how miserable it is. I thank you you don't walk away from us. I thank you that your tender, compassionate love is there for us. Lord, I want to pray for our campuses this weekend. I want to pray for those who are struggling, those who are suffering. God, I just ask for a miracle of your presence over them this weekend. I just ask you through your word to make them so aware, through your spirit to make them so aware they're not alone. May God, you provide them strength to know that you understand. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand together. I can't think of a better song for us to sing than that song, Great is Thy